So Barry, what's your definition of science? Science is the ability to prove the magic of the world and to put it on paper and to make other people go, oh, dang, you did it. Can I put that on the air? Yeah, go for it. Hello, and welcome to She Blinded Me With Science. My name is Kate, and I'll be blinding you today. All right, so today I have a story about bees for you, which is why we changed the intro to bees, specifically thieving Italian bees. Uh, oh, I should also say that in the studio with me right now is Ashvini, who is going to tell us about her research later. You want to say hi? Oh, hi. let me turn your mic on. Okay, now say hi. All right, hi. Cool, I heard that. <laughs> uh all right, and if you have any comments on the story, feel free. So this is a observational study published in the Journal of Apidology by Tiziano Londe and Guiliana Marzi. Those are Italian names, said with a very American accent. Apidology is a journal exclusively focused on apoida, which is the insect family that includes bees and wasps, which are both the best and the worst insects in that order. Uh, before I get into the story, I want to draw attention to the fact that these researchers, Londe and Marzi, are not associated with a university or a research institution. They published as independent researchers, which I think is pretty cool. This is actually the first study I've read that was conducted independently and without any kind of external funding. And I think it's a great example of backyard science. Londe has dozens of publications based on observational study covering orna ornithology, which is birds, herpetology, which is amphibians and reptiles, and also ecology and natural history. A lot of research areas are gatekept by restricting access to the resources needed to do that research, like reagents and tools. Thermo Fisher Scientific, for example, is the single largest laboratory supply company in the world, and you can't create an account on their website to order from them unless you have a university or a company email. And if you find a supplier that is willing to sell to an individual, the prices are often astronomically inflated. VWR is a smaller but still huge lab supply company that does like you that does let you make an account with a personal email. A pack of their universal pipette tips and pipette tips are one of the most basic and necessary tools for doing any kind of wet lab research. They let you measure the very small amounts of liquid that you need to measure. Those are about $45 when you purchase with UT credentials. And with a personal account, the same item is $200. So that's like a $450 upcharge. So it's not surprising that independent researchers are more commonly doing work that doesn't require special equipment, like recording and reporting natural behavior. Uh, all right, so that was my science equity tangent. Let's get back to the bees. Probably the best known types of bees are honeybees and bumblebees, but there are also mason bees, leafcutter bees, squash bees, sweat bees, and a lot more. I recommend looking up what bees are native to your backyard so you can identify and support them. We love native bees. 
You can tell apart honeybees and bumblebees pretty easily. Honeybees are slender and pointy, and they have a more honey-colored palette. And they live in hives and trees and tree-like structures. Bumblebees look like every cartoon of a bee, round and fluffy and black and yellow with, with stripes, with black and yellow stripes. Bumblebees like to dig underground burrows to live in instead of in hives, which I didn't know before I wrote about this. Other than that, honeybees and bumblebees have a lot in common. First of all, like all bees, they are very cute. These two are also both native to the Eurasian continent, or supercontinent. And more relevant to this story, the honeybee and the red-tailed bumblebee are both native to the Ligurian Apennine Mountains of Italy, and they both like foraging for a particular type of thistle flower pollen. Londi and Marzi observed that each of these bees, uh, bee species preferred different types of thistle flowers and preferred to keep to their own area of flowers and avoid interspecific contact. However, if there was only one type of flower available and not very much of it, then shenanigans ensued. Red-tailed bumblebees are larger than honeybees, so they take up most of the space on a given flower, making it difficult for the honeybees to access the pollen. So, instead of trying to shove their way in, the honeybees start to climb on the backs of the bumblebees and steal the pollen collected there. This behavior was actually first seen in North America in the 1980s and was coined kleptolecti. That's klepto as in stealing and lecti as in pollen. Uh, But this is the first time in this past year that it was recorded in Italy. Um, the reason I wanted to point out that it was recorded in the uh, U.S. first is because um, this behavior is, a, is of special interest to the Americas because honeybees are not native here. They are an introduced species, and they are very invasive. They outcompete native bees for nectar and pollen and use coordinated foraging strategies, including bee-on-bee larceny, which is stealing the honey, the stealing the pollen like we just talked about. So uh, you should learn how to recognize and differentiate honeybees from native bees and spread the word that honeybees are foreign thieves that do not belong here. They are very cute, very furry thieves. All right, it's time to start an enzyme incubation. And when we come back, we'll talk to we'll talk with Ashvini about her research. Be back in a moment. I am a honeybee, shut out from the colony, and they me in so I left the hive they took away all my straps and broke off both my wings so I'll find another tree and make the wind my friend I'll just sing with the birds Tell me secrets of the world 
Control of your mind, but I choose not to believe that. So we'll meet in the darkness of the night, and I promise I will be there on time. We'll be guided by my new friends, the butterflies, bring us back to our own little hive. Welcome back. We've started that enzyme incubation, and while that's going, uh, let's talk to Ashvini. Uh, I am still Kate, and uh, this is Ashvini Melcott, a third-year pharmacy and toxicology student in the Mukhopadhyay lab, who's going to tell us about her research project. Okay. Hi. Is my mic on? Now it's on. Hi. Okay, so I'm first going to start with some background about manganese. Manganese is a metal and an essential micronutrient that's required for many processes in the body and helps maintain our health. Usually we get enough manganese from a normal diet because it's present in many foods such as grains, leafy vegetables, nuts, shellfish, and many others. And we don't need a lot of it per day and manganese deficiency is very rare and the only known cause is due to certain genetic mutations. However, when people are overexposed to manganese, it can become toxic and lead to neurological problems. So this condition is called manganese-induced neurotoxicity, and this is a brain disease that's caused by excess manganese levels in the body. And in adults, this presents as a disorder called manganese-induced Parkinsonism, which is different from Parkinson's disease, but many of the motor symptoms are similar to those seen in Parkinson's, such as slowed movement, impaired gait and posture, and rigid muscles. So how is that different than Parkinson's disease? So in Parkinson's disease, the main... um, or what characterizes Parkinson's disease is the degeneration of neurons. But in manganese-induced Parkinsonism, that doesn't occur. So it's more of neuronal dysfunction and not degeneration. Um, 
But yeah, and then in infants, children, and adolescents, manganese toxicity can cause impairments in development and intellectual function as well as motor function. And it's very poorly understood, so there's no cure available and no effective treatments exist. And there can be many different causes of manganese toxicity. It can be it could be caused by impaired liver function, genetics, occupational exposure, or environmental exposure. And today, we're mainly going to focus on genetics and exposure. For exposure, if you're exposed to it and you develop these symptoms, mm -hmm. do the symptoms go away if you stop being exposed to it? Um, usually, no. It usually is irreversible. And yeah. And so um, focusing on exposure, there are multiple routes. And one is through occupational exposure in adults, which can happen through jobs like welding and mining. And in these types of jobs, there's heavy and prolonged exposure by inhalation, and this can lead to Parkinsonism. And it can also be caused by air pollution, which affects children and adults. And you can also consume it through drinking water. And private well water is typically where you'll find the higher levels of manganese, but it can also happen in public drinking water. And many soy-based baby formulas also have high concentrations of manganese. And overexposure does affect infants, children, adolescents the most. So these are the groups that are most vulnerable to developing disease. Why are they more vulnerable than adults? Yeah, so in early life, the excretion capabilities, which is just the body's ability to remove excess manganese, these um, their excretion capabilities aren't fully developed in early life. And in adults, um, it yeah, so adults have are able to excrete manganese better. So early life individuals are very sensitive to manganese. Um, and then just some facts about um, the public health problem that manganese exposure presents. In 2011, the World Health Organization discontinued the public drinking water regulations for manganese. So public water systems are not required to test for manganese. And the EPA guideline is 0.05 milligrams of manganese per liter, and the Lifetime Health Advisory is 0.3 milligrams of manganese per liter, but these guidelines are not enforceable. And the disease-causing threshold of, sorry, <laughs> threshold level of manganese in drinking water isn't clear, but there have been neurotoxic effects observed in children associated with manganese levels within the EPA guidelines, so these may be too high. And for infants, the adequate manganese intake guideline is based on the amount that, um, that breast milk contains. But soy-based infant formulas are often supplemented with manganese. And in 2019, a study surveyed formulas available in the U.S. market, and they found that some of them contained almost a thousand times higher than the recommended intake. So this definitely is a looming public health problem. So if you're uh, not breastfeeding and you're buying formula, this is something you might want to check. Definitely, yeah. So this is a major public health problem, and what our lab wants to answer is how manganese actually affects the brain to cause disease. So now we're going to transition over to the neuroscience. In the brain, there's a region called the basal ganglia, which you can think of as the motor control center of our body controlling all movement. 
And we know that under conditions of manganese overexposure, the excess manganese builds up in this region. So we know that manganese is doing something to the basal ganglia that causes motor disease. And within the basal ganglia, there's two main populations of neurons, dopaminergic and GABAergic, which produce the neurotransmitters dopamine and GABA. And these neurons work together to control movement. But even though we know that manganese affects the basal ganglia, we still don't know what specific type of neuron it targets. And a protein called SLC3A10 is a key player in answering that question. This is a transporter protein, and what it does is transports manganese from inside the cell to outside. So it's crucial for regulating manganese levels in the brain and making sure that the levels don't get too high. But in our lab, we use SLC3A10 as a tool to study how manganese affects neurons. And we can do this by changing manganese levels in specific neurons using genetically modified mouse models. So previously, we developed SLC3A10 whole brain knockout mice, which lack SLC3A10 in the entire brain. We also developed dopaminergic-specific knockouts, which lack SLC3A10 in only dopaminergic neurons, and GABAergic-specific knockouts, which lack SLC3A10 in only GABAergic neurons. So in each of these different strains, the cells that don't have SLC3A10 are going to have increased manganese levels because there's no way to push out the excess manganese. Because they don't have that transporter. Right. And we ran behavioral tests on these mice to test their motor function. And we saw that both the whole brain and dopaminergic knockouts had impaired motor function, but the GABAergic knockouts didn't, meaning that the lack of SLC3A10 in the GABAergic neurons didn't affect their motor behavior. So from this work with the knockout mice, we've drawn two main takeaways. First is that the activity of SLC3A10 in dopaminergic neurons, but not GABAergic neurons, is required to protect against motor disease, and also that dopaminergic neurons might be the primary target of manganese. So that's our hypothesis, but we still need a way to definitively definitively determine whether dopaminergic neurons are the target of manganese. So that is what my research project is focused on. So in my work, I'm using SLC3A10 knock-in mice, which is just the opposite of knocking out. So instead of removing this protein, we're increasing the expression of it. So they have more of the transporter, mm -hmm. which means they should have less of the manganese. Exactly, yeah. Um, so we have dopaminergic or GABAergic-specific knock-ins, which um, overexpress SLC3A10 in either dopaminergic or GABAergic neurons. So like you said, we expect that this would be able to prevent the increase or decrease manganese levels in those specific neurons. So my main research question is whether increasing SLC3A10 expression in dopaminergic neurons can prevent motor disease. And we already have the answer. So I exposed control and dopaminergic knock-in mice to manganese throughout early life, and we saw that the control mice that were exposed to manganese developed manganese-induced motor deficits. But with the knock-ins that were exposed, they didn't show any signs of motor deficits, and their behavior was similar to the mice that didn't receive any treatment. So this showed that dopaminergic-specific knock-ins are protected from manganese-induced motor disease. So now, just to recap some of the important take-home messages, 
First, overexposure to manganese can cause neurotoxicity and presents a major public health problem, especially for early life individuals who might consume it through infant formula or drinking water. And second, we talked about the protein SLC3810, which is a protein that transports manganese out from inside the cell to outside and can also be used as a tool to study how manganese affects neurons by giving us the ability to manipulate manganese levels in specific neurons. And finally, dopaminergic neurons in the basal ganglia region of the brain may be the primary target of manganese, and the evidence from our previous SLC3810 knockout mouse models and the dopaminergic SLC3810 knock-in models supports this. So, yeah, that is what we have so far. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, manganese causes some Parkinson-like mm-hmm. symptoms. Yes. And this transporter, SLC38810, mm-hmm. uh, helps remove the manganese. Yes. And then you made a bunch of mice. And in the mice that had that did not have that transporter, uh, they had too much manganese and they had those motor deficits. Right. And then in the mice that had a lot of that transporter, they had less manganese and did not have any motor deficits. Yeah, so they were protected from the motor deficits even when they were treated with manganese. And then in the normal mice, uh, did they have motor deficits when they were treated with manganese? Yeah, so the normal mice that um, they weren't knock-ins or knockouts, just normal wild-type mice, when they were treated with manganese, they did develop motor deficits, so manganese-induced disease. Okay. Can you... uh, and I haven't prepped you for, for any of these questions. Uh, ha, do you have any idea how uh, this finding might eventually lead to some kind of treatment for manganese toxicity? Yeah, definitely. So if we find that dopaminergic neurons are the target of manganese, which all of our evidence shows so far, um, so that can be an important therapeutic target in the future when developing drugs. And We also showed that SLC3810, the overexpression, can prevent manganese-induced motor deficits. So down the line, looking into treatments, that gives us further insight in how we may be be able to prevent against disease by targeting SLC3810. So prevent, but maybe not treat. Yeah, right? Well, yeah, so it's it's hard to say. it's still not clear whether we can reverse it or like remove the symptoms, but for prevention, it's definitely, um, yeah, that definitely will um, gives us implications for the prevention. All right. Yeah. Thanks so much for sharing. Uh, with that, it's we have to go change some cell culture media. <laughs> so here's another song. Making flowers on a sunny day When others ask me how what do I say I'm having such a good time By myself Everything seems to go my way This is where I want to stay No one can have a better time Than myself
Welcome back. So to tie these two stories together, our first story was about B. kleptolecti stealing pollen from each other. And our second story was by Ashvini about manganese neurotoxicity. These are two very different stories. And so I wanted to find something to tie them together and make this more cohesive and not just that honeybees and manganese rhyme, which was the original reason why I put these topics together. But I found an article from 2015 on the impact of manganese on honeybee foraging, which was published in Biology Letters by a collaboration between Washington University in Missouri and Macquarie University in New South Wales, Australia. So Ashvini told us about how manganese contamination in the environment, uh, in the water supply, and in uh, breast milk can cause neurological issues in Uh, babies, and this extends to most vertebrates. But even environmental levels of manganese that are not considered to be toxic to humans can affect pollinators and, by extension, the general ecosystem. Because bees stockpile nectar and pollen, that trace amount of manganese from contaminated flowers gets concentrated, and it ends up accumulating in honey and in bee bodies, in their body tissue. So the authors of this letter, uh, Eirik Savik and his group, measured neurotransmitter levels in bees with normal or with elevated manganese. So really similar to Eshvini's work with mice, they had some bees that were given a diet with normal amounts of manganese and some bees that were given a diet with too much manganese. And they found that the bees that had too much manganese had an increased presence of dopamine, which is the opposite of what it does in mammals. Can you remind us how that works in mammals? Yeah, so in mammals, when um, there's overexposure to manganese, it's usually, um, it's been associated with either depletion in dopamine or dysfunction in dopamine. But yeah, I've never heard of increased Mm -hmm. dopamine in mammals, yeah. So for some reason, it's the opposite in invertebrates as it is in vertebrates. Um, and the bees that had too much manganese and therefore and thereby too much dopamine uh, also s- transitioned from living in the hive to foraging younger than their than their control bees. They also made fewer foraging trips over the course of their life, so they were going out to collect pollen less times, fewer times, and they also took longer to get back to the hive from a foraging trip which could suggest an impact on their navigational abilities. In other studies, uh, the length of time it takes for a bee to leave the hive and come back has been associated with uh, them dying because they can't find their way as well. Uh, So that could be correlated with mammalian behavior in terms of neuromotor (laughs) neuromotor (laughs) dysfunction. Um, So the news that this study produced uh, had some dramatic headlines, which I found tickling, such as manganese speeds up honeybees and common metal addles honeybee brains and manganese turns honeybees into bumbling foragers. But I think the main takeaway is that in order to protect the environment from pollutants like manganese and other metals, 
we need to consider not only what is dangerous to humans, but also what is dangerous to insects and other organisms that are necessary to a functioning ecosystem. So thank you for tuning in to She Blinded Me With Science. Today's quote was by my roommate, Barry. Uh, share your science and lab quotes with me to be featured at the top of the show. Uh, thank you to Ashvini for being my first guest on the show. <laughs> Do you have any last words? Um, yeah. I mean, I just thought the connection with bees and manganese was really cool. I definitely learned something new. I didn't think that um, manganese, well, I wasn't sure that manganese pollution affected more than just humans. So I thought that was super cool. Um, and yeah, thank you for listening. All right. Uh, while, I w while we were getting an enzyme incubation started, you heard Honeybee by Z. Avi. And when we went to change cell culture media, you heard Bees by Wholesome. And if you have questions, comments, or confusion, connect with me via email at sciencekvrx at utexas.edu. Or drop us a message on Instagram at sciencekvrx. Audio Acids were produced by Indigo Starbeam, and you can find him wherever you stream music. Thanks for listening, and remember, always keep your RNA on ice.